Welcome, everyone, to Episode 9 of the Curseland Podcast, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. I am your host and sole proprietor of Curseland, which can be found at www.curse.land. And a very special welcome today to new listeners. There is a big uptick in subscriptions this week, so I wanted to say thank you to you all. Thank you all a lot. If you like the show, tell a friend or two. As always, I hope you enjoy today's episode. Let's get started. More than 60 years after its last confirmed sighting, a strange deer with vampire-like fangs still persists in the rugged, forested slopes of northeast Afghanistan, according to a research team led by the Wildlife Conservation Society, which confirmed the species' presence during recent surveys. From EurekaAlert.org, Strange Fanged Deer Persists in Afghanistan Known as the Kashmir musk deer, one of seven similar species found in Asia, the last scientific sighting in Afghanistan was believed to have been made by a Danish survey team traversing the region in 1948. The study was published in the October 22nd edition of the journal Oryx. Authors include Stephanie Ostrowski and Peter Zaylor of the Wildlife Conservation Society, Akik Ramani of the University of Leeds, and Jan Muhammad Ali and Rita Ali of Weigel, Nuristan, Afghanistan. The species is categorized as endangered on the IUCN Red List due to habitat loss and poaching. Its scent glands are coveted by wildlife traffickers and are considered more valuable by weight than gold, fetching as much as $45,000 a kilo on the black market. The male's distinct saber-like tusks are used during the rutting season to compete with other males. The survey team recorded five sightings, including a solitary male in the same area on three occasions, one female with a juvenile, and one solitary female, which may have been the same individual without her young. All sightings were in steep, rocky outcrops, interspersed with alpine meadows and scattered, dense, high bushes of juniper and rhododendron. According to the team, the musk deer were discreet, cryptic, difficult to spot, and could not be photographed. The authors say that targeted conservation of the species and its habitat are needed for it to survive in Afghanistan. Although the deteriorating security conditions in Nuristan did not allow NGOs to remain in Nuristan after 2010, the Wildlife Conservation Society maintains contact with the local people it has trained and will pursue funding to continue ecosystem research and protection in Nuristan when the situation improves. Musk deer are one of Afghanistan's living treasures, said co-author Peter Zaylor, WCS Deputy Director of Asia Programs. This rare species, along with better-known wildlife such as snow leopards, are the natural heritage of this struggling nation. We hope that conditions will stabilize soon to allow WCS and local partners to better evaluate conservation needs of this species. And listeners, if you click the link to this article in the show notes, you'll see they do have a photograph of a musk deer on that page. Very weird. Scarier to look at than I would have imagined. Give it a gander. 
Albert Doppler snapped a photo of a beautiful young girl in Elysian Park. Immediately, he checked his digital camera. What the... In the photo, the girl did not have her own face. She had the face of a bearded man. It was no ordinary bearded man, either. The man had vile, dark eyes and a deformed, protruding jaw. Albert was disturbed. This must be a mistake, he muttered. No, the girl said suddenly. It's not a mistake. She was glancing over his shoulder at the picture. Her voice was agitated. You, you've uncovered my secret. Secret? It's my other face, she said tensely. It only comes out for a few seconds. I never know when. Your other face, Albert asked uneasily. Yes, it's not normally visible to the naked eye. Somehow, you captured it on your camera in the moment it popped out. But how is that possible? Albert stuttered, confused. How? She laughed at his question. Then she laughed even more, her head leaning to one side. How naive you are. I sometimes forget there are naive people like you. I don't think I'm naive. I think you're pulling my leg. Am I? She asked, turning serious again. The proof is in the picture. Albert said nothing, not knowing what to say. Let me tell you something, the girl continued, locking her blue eyes on Albert. For a long time now, I've learned to suppress it. I've learned to do this strictly by controlling my emotions. But I can't control my feelings all the time, can I? Every so often, he rears his ugly head. He? Albert asked. The bearded man. I don't understand, said Albert, rattled. She showed a flash of annoyance, and Albert saw her face transform into the bearded man's hideous face for a split second, this time right in front of his very eyes. He blinked, shaking off the horrific vision. The girl stepped closer, sensing his fear. It's camouflaged, like a chameleon. The face hides itself seamlessly. But I live on despite this, she whispered, looking down at the pavement, somberly. I I have to go now, Albert said, reassuring himself the girl was utterly mad. Yes, you go now, she said, not lifting her eyes off the ground. And I don't believe a word you say, Albert declared, his voice quivering. Believe what you want, she said sinisterly. She moved very close. Their cheeks were almost touching. Have we ever met before today? She suddenly asked him. No, I've never seen you before in my life, Albert told her with certainty. Are you sure we've never crossed paths? She insisted. I think we did. She smiled. It was a chilling smile that made Albert shudder to his core. You're wrong. We've never set eyes on each other. So long, he said, quickly turning on his heels and walking away. Don't expect too much from your life. You live in illusion, she shouted after him, her voice echoing. You'll see soon for yourself what you are. Albert kept walking, faster, his heart thumping. You're fucking nuts, he cried. He rapidly left the park, not daring to look back. He felt her stare penetrating the rear of his skull. When he got home, he quickly looked in the mirror. The situation was dire. What he saw chilled his blood. He saw the face of the hideous bearded man looking back at him in the reflection, the darkly evil eyes, the deformed protruding jaw. 
He was grinning, that awful, abominable man, just a floating face, without a body. Was this the nightmare to end all nightmares? He remembered the girl's haunting words. Are you sure we've never crossed paths? Suddenly, Albert realized the horrific truth. He had never existed. He'd never been Albert Doppler. He belonged only to that beautiful young girl in the park. He was her second face. Listeners, that story was from the book 41 Strange. It's a book of short stories, sort of of the flavor of that one. Uh, That was entitled The Face. If you're into that sort of thing, which I assume you are since you're listening to this show, click the link in the show notes. Check it out. so on, sometimes said to be evidence for Bigfoot or the Yeti, are a far cry from the most remarkable piece of data associated with the so-called crypto-hominids. The complete carcass of a hirsute male hominid, 1.8 meters tall, preserved in ice and transported about the United States as part of a traveling exhibition belonging to Frank D. Hansen. At this time, late 1968, the specimen was known as the Sibirsky creature. From the scientificamerican.com, a story by Darren Nash, The Strange Case of the Minnesota Iceman. The specimen was brought to the attention of cryptozoologists Ivan T. Sanderson and Bernard Huvelmans by aspiring naturalist Terry Cullen. Cullen had observed the carcass at the International Livestock Exposition's annual fair in Chicago. Hansen claimed that he was only the temporary ward of the body and that it belonged to an undisclosed owner, widely rumored to be actor Jimmy Stewart. At one time, Hansen claimed that the body had been discovered floating in a block of ice off the Siberian coast by a Russian seal-hunting vessel. Later, he said that a Japanese whaling ship found the body. Later still, he said that it had been found in a deep-freeze facility in Hong Kong. And later still, it was said that the animal had been shot on a hunting trip in the Whiteface Reservoir region of Minnesota. For all these suggestions, the most popular idea about the body's origin is that it was collected in Vietnam and flown to the United States in a body bag. Huvelmans connected it with the story of a huge ape killed in Da Nang, Vietnam, in 1966, supposedly close to where Hansen had been stationed during the war. Sanderson and Huvelmans examined the Iceman in December 1968 at Hansen's home where it was being stored off show for the winter. Both became convinced of its reality, so much so that they prepared detailed illustrations and planned to have the creature described in the technical literature. The body was that of a robust, barrel-chested male with a thick neck and large hands and feet. Its face was broad, flattened, and possessed a short, upturned nose and prominent brow ridges. An eyeball dangled from one of the sockets, apparently resulting from a gunshot to the back of the head, and a bend in the forearm was interpreted as evidence for a fractured radius and ulna. Sanderson and Huvelmans were intrigued by its enormous hands. Its thumb was slender, tapered and long, its nails were flat, yellow, and of an appearance that almost looked manicured. An heel-like pad was present on the palm's outer side, a feature suggested by Sanderson to be indicative of habitual quadrupedal behavior. At one point during the examination, the glass over its case cracked, 
releasing an odor described as that of decomposing flesh. This object has been known ever since as the Minnesota Iceman. Sanderson and Hubelmans both spoke about it in the media, Sanderson making the unfortunate decision to refer to it as Bozo. This seems oddly unhelpful given his apparent belief that it was real. Hubelmans published a 1969 paper on it in a Belgian scientific journal, identifying it as a new species of the human genus that he named Homo pongoides, meaning ape-like man. He later modified this proposal, arguing that H. pongoides was a form of living Neanderthal. His ideas were explored in detail in his 1974 book, L'Homme de Neanderthal, as toujours vivant, co-authored with Russian historian, economist, and crypto-hominid expert Boris Porchnev. John Napier, a primatologist at the Smithsonian Institution with a serious interest in crypto-hominids, was invited to examine the Iceman. He became sure that it was a latex model. Hansen's dodge for this was that he had withdrawn the original, genuine specimen from display, mostly from fear of being found guilty of killing what might have been a form of human, and replaced it with a model. Sanderson supported this by saying that the specimen examined by Napier was obviously different from the original one he and Hubelmans had examined. Photos show that over the years, the form of the face and body varied somewhat. In some photos, the mouth is closed, and in others, it's open, clearly revealing a complement of large teeth. Maybe there was more than one model, and some of the models looked more realistic than others, but it also seems possible that as the model used by Hansen was defrosted and frozen again for each annual outing, it would have taken on a slightly different pose and appearance each time. The skeptical view of the Minnesota Iceman has always been that it was a hoax, the latest in a long tradition of displaying enigmatic, memorable sideshow exhibits that are implied to be real. In 2013, what appears to be the original and genuine article was offered for sale online. Today, the Minnesota Iceman is owned by Steve Busty of the Museum of the Weird in Austin, Texas, and certainly looks identical to the specimen discussed and illustrated by Huvelmans and Sanderson. Its hoaxed nature doesn't exactly leave Huvelmans or Sanderson looking all that credible as scientists. What makes the Minnesota Iceman case especially interesting within the context of cryptozoology as a whole is how it was interpreted by supporters of its reality. Thanks to Huvelman's influence, the concept of a dark-furred Asian cryptohominid with an upturned nose, distinctive facial, hand and foot anatomy, and a barrel-shaped chest has caught on. Cryptohominid researcher Helmut Lufswasawa argued in 1994 that images from ancient art were consistent with this description, and hence that knowledge of Homo pongoides has been influential throughout human history. Of course, wherever we search in the world, there are legends, stories, and often claimed sightings of wild, hairy people. So it isn't surprising that various semi-legendary Asian creatures were linked to this concept and discussed as possible representatives of the same sort of animal. A large number of wild man reports collected from the Caucasus in the west to Mongolia in the east by crypto-hominid researchers Boris Porchnev, Dmitry Bayanov, and Marie-Jean Kaufman have been said to be uncannily similar to Homo pongoides in anatomy and therefore interpreted as sightings of the exact same species. 
In addition, more than 20 reports collected in northern Pakistan by the late herpetologist Jordi Magriner and pertaining to a wild man known as the Barmanu have also been regarded as descriptions of Homo pongoides, the witnesses again reporting a long list of features regarded as consistent with this creature's appearance. Magriner's investigation and analysis has been regarded as a great triumph of the cryptozoological method and as a demonstration of the fact that Homo pongoides and the Minnesota Iceman are valid biological entities. Similarly, Luf Swisawa's ideas about hominids of this sort being depicted in art have also been regarded as providing support for the existence of this creature. But the Iceman was a model, and thus the species and the traits associated with it evaporate as anything meaningful in biological terms. Where does this leave all those reports that match it in description? We have to conclude that everything written about Pongoides-like hominids encountered in ancient art and real life is erroneous that people were picking and choosing those features that match the Pongoides concept and being led astray by a mistaken assumption that it was a real animal. Danny Miner, a 66-year-old retired chemical plant supervisor, spends most of his days alone in his Tool, Utah apartment with gunsmoke reruns to keep him company and a phone that rarely rings. Old age wasn't supposed to feel this lonely. Mr. Miner married five times, each bride bringing the promise of lifelong companionship. Three unions ended in divorce, two wives died, now his legs ache and his balance is faulty, and he's stopped going to church or meeting friends at the Marine Corps League, a group for former Marines. I get a little depressed from time to time, he says. From WSJ.com, a story by Janet Adamy and Paul Overberg. The Loneliest Generation. Americans, more than ever, are aging alone. Baby boomers are aging alone more than any generation in U.S. history, and the resulting loneliness is a looming public health threat. About 1 in 11 Americans age 50 and older lacks a spouse, partner, or living child, census figures and other research show. That amounts to about 8 million people in the U.S. without close kin, the main source of companionship in old age, and their share of the population is projected to grow. Policymakers are concerned this will strain the federal budget and undermine baby boomers' health. Researchers have found that loneliness takes a physical toll and is as closely linked to early mortality as smoking up to 15 cigarettes a day or consuming more than six alcoholic drinks a day. Loneliness is even worse for longevity than being obese or physically inactive. Along with financial issues, including high debt and declining pensions, social factors such as loneliness are another reason boomers are experiencing more difficult retirement years than previous generations. The lack of social contacts among older adults costs Medicare $6.7 billion a year, mostly from spending on nursing facilities and hospitalization for those who have less of a network to help out, according to a study last year by Harvard University. Stanford University, and AARP. The effect of isolation is extraordinarily powerful, says Donald Berwick, 
former administrator of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. If we want to achieve health for our population, especially vulnerable people, we have to address loneliness. The Trump administration is looking at expanding faith-based partnerships to combat isolation among seniors, says U.S. Assistant Secretary for Aging Lance Robertson. Earlier this year, the British government appointed its first Minister of Loneliness to tackle the issue. Baby boomers prized individuality and generally had fewer children and ended marriages in greater numbers than previous generations. More than one in four boomers is divorced or never married, census figures show. About one in six lives alone. The University of Chicago's General Social Survey, which has tracked American attitudes since 1972, asked respondents four years ago how often they lacked companionship, felt left out, and felt isolated from others. Baby boomers said they experienced these feelings with greater frequency than any other generation, including the older, silent generation. Karen Schneider, a 69-year-old in East San Jose, California, went through an acrimonious split from her husband in the mid-1990s that left her estranged from her two daughters and without anywhere to live. Friends let her sleep on couches and a garage as she scraped by on jobs as a home health aide and a Walmart greeter. Sometimes she slept in her car. Over the years, that support network shriveled as people moved away or died, she says. When Miss Schneider landed in the hospital with a heart attack six years ago, she had no one to call for help. When you get older, you don't have as many friends, she says. Everything changes. Among the most likely to lack close kin are college-educated women and people with little money, says Ashton Verdery, an assistant professor of sociology and demography at Pennsylvania State University. More senior women than men are kinless because women's life expectancies are nearly five years longer, at 81 years. Of Americans age 50 and over in 2016, 27% of women were widowed or never married, compared with 16% of men. Women are also less likely to cohabitate and date later in life, research shows. Paula Lettuce of Alexandria, Virginia, got divorced at age 39, remarried at 42, and was a widow by 44. Now, age 69, the former senior executive says she struggled to find a new partner. After she retired seven years ago, Miss Lettuce worried that isolation and inactivity would hasten the onset of dementia that runs in her family. She began volunteering to drive older, homebound seniors, started a business helping others organize their homes, and invited neighbors over for chili on Halloween. She went on a trip to France with a tour group, although she didn't know anyone else in the group. Her two grown sons live in Boston and Durham, North Carolina, with children of their own. When they don't come home for Christmas, she pretends it's just another day. She blasts the Hamilton music and occupies herself by cleaning out her closets. One year, she reupholstered the dining room chairs. I don't like being by myself, Miss Lettuce says. I wish I were dating. I wish I had somebody significant. She recently gave up two tickets to a beer tasting fundraiser when she couldn't find a date. In a review of 148 independent studies on loneliness, covering more than 300,000 participants, Julian Holt Lundsted of Brigham Young University and colleagues found that greater social connection was associated with a 50% lower risk of early death. Research suggests that those who are isolated are at an increased risk of depression, cognitive decline, and dementia, and that social relationships influence their blood pressure and immune functioning, 
as well as whether people take their medications. Loneliness and isolation are bad for your health at any age, but the forces that take hold late in life often compound it. Retirement shrivels social networks formed through work. Hearing loss and worsening mobility impede talking face-to-face and participating in group activities. Some of the health risk comes from the consequences of being alone when sickness strikes. Gary Grasmick, a 68-year-old retired federal IT worker who lives by himself, was carrying groceries into his Washington, D.C. row house two years ago when he felt his knee give out. Overweight and unable to get up, and with no phone in reach, he lay there for at least two nights as dehydration and a urinary tract infection led to sepsis. His kidneys started shutting down, and he grew delirious. I heard the mailman come once in a while, and I would yell out, he says. Nobody heard me. Mr. Grasmick tried to drag himself to a phone and a sink, but couldn't get there. He began to lose track of time. I remember being thirsty and having weird dreams, he says. I was confused and frightened. A friend became worried when he didn't return her calls and called the police. When emergency personnel found him, his brain had swelled. In his delirium, he thought that hospital caretakers were trying to hurt him. It wasn't until an old fraternity brother showed up to visit that he fully understood what happened. Then I felt safe, he says. After more than two weeks in intensive care and six months in a skilled nursing facility, he returned home last year and made some changes. Mr. Grasmick installed an emergency call box he can trigger from a wristband and began tucking his cell phone into the shirt pocket on his pajamas before he climbs into bed at night. Being by himself doesn't bother Mr. Grasmick, an only child whose brief marriage in his mid-thirties produced no children. His fall, however, showed him that his living situation makes him vulnerable. You almost die from it and you realize this isn't really kidding around, he says. In Boston, a cluster of seniors in 2002 banded together to form a village so they could lean on each other for household services, social activities, and old age planning. That's spawned 350 similar groups nationwide in what is now known as the Village to Village Network. Members can tap rides to doctor's appointments, handymen, and activities like group meditation and bowling. Mr. Grasmick joined the group after his fall, and he gets together with other participants to socialize and attend a balance class. It gives me an excuse to get out of the house, he says. Meals on Wheels America, which delivers food to 2.4 million seniors annually, is enhancing its services. Most of its clients live alone and need increasing amounts of social help. In one pilot project, volunteers use an app to track whether meal recipients report feeling disconnected. Those who do are referred to a care coordinator. We're the only people they see, says Ellie Hollander, president and chief executive of Meals on Wheels. This has been an ongoing issue that I think has been a silent epidemic. Miss Schneider from East San Jose found a support network after her heart attack six years ago through OnLock, a San Francisco Bay Area nonprofit that coordinates her medical care and weaves social activities into her visits. The group, whose name means Peaceful, Happy Home in Cantonese, was started around the Chinatown area of San Francisco. She goes to the East San Jose Center twice a week to get her blood sugar checked and sometimes stays for lunch and to play bingo with other patients. She found a subsidized apartment, and now that she has a stable place to live, she's befriended a neighbor who joins her for dollar store shopping trips. 
When she's alone in her apartment, Miss Schneider keeps the television on from the time she wakes up until the time she falls asleep, just to have music and the noise, because then you don't feel lonely. Mr. Minor, the Utah retiree, hoped for a close family when he married at age 21 while in the Marines. After 17 years together and four adopted children, he and his wife split and his relationship with each child frayed. One son lives in Japan. A daughter stopped speaking to him. He rarely sees the other two. The next two unions each fell apart after about three years. Then his fourth wife died of a prescription drug overdose. Life improved at age 50 when he married a human resources specialist five years his senior. They spent most nights experimenting with recipes from the Food Network and playing Scrabble. Six years ago, his wife, Karma Minor, died after battling ovarian cancer. Now, the only family Mr. Minor sees regularly is a brother who stops by every few weeks to cut his hair. His main outings are trips to the VA hospital in Salt Lake City for cortisone shots in his sore shoulders and checkups for emphysema and diabetes. Mr. Minor sought companionship in a home health aide who came weekly to clean and make sure he didn't fall while showering. When she finished working, they would sit together and talk, sharing butterscotch candies and smiling at pictures of her grandchildren on her phone. She stopped coming in October, after she moved out of the area. I just loved having her to talk to, Mr. Minor says. You don't realize just how lonely you are until you see someone and you talk to them. files from behavior modification or mind control projects conducted as part of the infamous project MKUltra reveal the CIA experimented in more than controlling humans with psychotropic drugs, electrical shocks, and radio waves. They also created field operational remote controlled dogs. From Newsweek.com, a story by Andrew Whalen. How the CIA used brain surgery to make six remote-controlled dogs. The documents were provided under the Freedom of Information Act by John Greenwald, founder of the Black Vault, a site specializing in declassified government records. In one declassified letter, released as file C-00-21825, a redacted individual writes to a doctor, whose name has also been redacted, with advice about launching a laboratory for experiments in animal mind control. The writer of the letter is already an expert in the field whose earlier work had culminated with the creation of six remote-controlled dogs which could be made to run, turn, and stop. As you know, I spent about three years working in the research area of rewarding electrical stimulation of the brain, the individual writes. In the laboratory, we performed a number of experiments with rats. In the open field, we employed dogs of several breeds. The letter writer characterizes the work with remote controlling dogs as a success, describing a demonstrated procedure for controlling the free field behaviors of an unrestrained dog. Attached to the letter is the writer's final report from his earlier research, published in 1965, titled Remote Control Behavior with rewarding electrical stimulation in the brain, with the principal investigator's name redacted. 
The specific aim of the research program was to examine the possibility of controlling the behavior of a dog in an open field by means of remotely triggering electrical stimulation of the brain, the report states. Such a system depends for its effectiveness on two properties of electrical stimulation delivered to certain deep-lying structures of the dog brain, the well-known reward effect and a tendency for such simulation to initiate and maintain locomotion in a direction which is accompanied by the continued delivery of stimulation. Delivering that electrical stimulation to a dog's brain involves some gruesome side effects, including infection at the electrode site due to a failure of the surgical wound to heal. After trying out a plastic helmet, they instead settled on a new surgical technique that involved embedding the electrode entirely within a mound of dental cement on the skull and running the leads subcutaneously to a point between the shoulder blades, where the leads are brought to the surface and affixed to a standard dog harness. After implanting electrodes deep in the subject dog's brain, a battery pack and stimulator was added to the harness through which signals could be sent to the electrodes. The stimulator had to be reliable and capable of sufficient voltage output to be usable in the face of expected impedance variation across individual dogs. At least by 1967, when the letter was written, it seems unlikely that remote-controlled dogs were ever used in the field as the letter writer outlines some of the limitations and challenges to any follow-up program going forward. Behavioral control was limited to distances of 100 to 200 yards at most, they write in the letter. Other concerns are more mundane, such as the letter's speculation regarding where the CIA might find a suitable open field nearby. Still, the prospect of a potential new laboratory seems to fire the letter writer's imagination, who describes potential experimentation on a range of species should they want to move past basic research, i.e. rat work. C0021825 is far from the only behavioral modification document released by the Black Vault involving animals. Numerous other files pertain to budgeting and acquisition for animal experimentation. One file, which has been previously declassified, details, with heavy redactions, the practical possibilities of training and equipping cats for quote-unquote foreign situation fieldwork. The Vilekas case, the demonic possession and subsequent death of Estefania Gutierrez Lazaro, gained legendary status in Spain, not just for the events, but for the number of first-hand witnesses, including neighbors, friends, hospital workers, and the legal authorities, who filed an official report documenting the events they saw. From AlteredDimensions.net The Vilekas case the demonic possession of Estefania Gutierrez Lazaro provides compelling evidence of paranormal activity via the official police report of responding officers. In early 1990, the family of 18-year-old Estefania Gutierrez Lazaro noticed an odd change in her behavior. The family, who lived in Vallecas, a municipality of Spain just south of Madrid, worried when Estefania began suffering from hallucinations and convulsions. In an instant, Estefania would burst into rages, barking, growling, and hissing at her brothers. 
She told the family she saw shadows walking through her room at night. The Lazaro family took Estefania to several doctors who puzzled over her condition. After finding no explanation for her bizarre symptoms, in August 1991, Estefania was admitted to a hospital in Madrid for further evaluation. Hospital physicians could find nothing physically wrong with her, and thus no diagnosis could be provided. Still, Estefania's health continued to deteriorate, and her seizures and hallucinations grew stronger. After three weeks, hospital workers found Estefania lifeless in her bed. She had no apparent wounds or any other indication of how she died. She simply stopped breathing. The official autopsy report declares she died of a heart attack. The Lazaro family struggled with Estefania's death and brooded over the rapid and mysterious decline in her health and mental state. They knew Estefania had been reading several books about the occult and spiritualism. Then, school officials came forward and notified the parents that Estefania and some of her friends had been toying with a homemade Ouija board in a field behind the school. According to the surviving girls, the idea to use the board had been Estefania's. The girls described how they utilized a small, clear, upside-down glass as a pointer, and each placing a finger on the bottom rim of the glass began asking questions of the spirits. According to the girls, at one point, the glass flew across the board of its own accord and shattered into pieces. A nun caught the girls performing the act, admonished them, snatched up the board, and broke it in two. The nun questioned the girls and found that Estefania had brought the board to school in an effort to help one of her friends contact a boyfriend who had recently died in a motorcycle accident. Although the girls felt no contact with the dead boyfriend had been made, they claimed they saw a mysterious, thick, dark puff of smoke appear, the source of which none could discern. The smoke hovered briefly over the board, then surged towards Estefania. After Estefania's death, the family experienced a series of bizarre events. At first, they began hearing a disembodied voice whispering, Mama, Mama, often emanating from Estefania's bathroom. When the family opened the door to the bathroom, they found the room empty. Soon, the aberration spread to Estefania's bedrooms. The family normally kept the room clean, kempt, and organized, but every couple of days, they would enter the room to find bedsheets thrown around the room and objects scattered across the floor. Next, they began hearing scrapes along the walls and the sounds of cackling laughter radiating from the ceiling. Then, the situation grew worse. Soon, the echoing sound of laughter turned to wailing and a hard sound like fists punching through the walls. Lights and appliances would switch on and off. Then the sounds and unseen forces turned real. The doors began to open by themselves. The family resorted to placing furniture, including a large sofa, in front of doors to keep them closed. To no avail, the family would hear a sound like a huge wind, the handles of the doors turned, and the furniture, including the sofa, were flung out of the way. In one instance, the door burst open, knocking a photo of a smiling Estefania from a shelf onto the floor. When her mother picked up the picture, she dropped it suddenly. Her father, puzzled, reached to pick up the photo and stopped when he saw the photo paper ignite, burning through the face of Estefania. 
Soon, family members began seeing a strange, dark, humanoid creature moving quietly about the house. One of Estefania's sisters described an encounter with the mysterious creature. We heard a whistling sound, like on other nights, and then a groan near the door. We were so scared we were frozen. It was then we noticed something on the floor as the light from the street lights would enter our bedroom and light it up. It was the shape of a man crawling, dragging itself along the floor. He had a black head, no eyes, no mouth, nothing. It was crawling towards us and we started to scream. It was then that the toys we had on a shelf started to be thrown violently towards the other wall, one by one, and then we heard bangs and shouts. The Lazaro family were not the only witnesses to the strange events. Visiting neighbors confirmed the family's claims, reporting shadows skittering along the walls of the home and seeing toys and other objects fly through the air, sometimes with enough force to embed the object into the wall. Events culminated in 1992. Estefania's mother awoke in the middle of the night, feeling pressure on top of me. According to Mrs. Lazaro, I felt a pair of hands grab my feet, then grab my arm. Mrs. Lazaro's terrifying visit in the middle of the night prompted the family's first call to the local authorities. Police arrived at the home at 2.40 a.m. and were greeted by a terrified family who burst outside, babbling about loud bangs, booms, and other noises. Present were Chief Inspector of the National Police, Jose Pedro, Officer Negri, and three other police officers. As they approached the home, the official police report documents they heard loud noises coming from the empty porch, and upon entering the home, the door of a close armoire opened in a sudden and totally unnatural way. Then, a crucified statue of Jesus separated from his cross. Police recorded their experience in an official police report. In part, it said, We sat with the family. You could hear and see how a perfectly shut cupboard door would open and shut. We checked the door. It was perfect. It moved in an anti-natural way. Moments later, we saw a tablecloth on a small telephone table become stained by a brown substance that the inspector identified as drool-like. When we checked the bedrooms of the house, we saw a wooden cross spun upside down and the metal Christ upon it was ripped off. One of the daughters then placed the cross behind the door on a poster. Then, in the same moment, there appeared three nail marks, scratches, on the poster. Later, Officer Negri was approached by local news and in an on-screen interview told reporters what he experienced when he entered Estefania's bedroom. It was a small bedroom with twin beds. The father told us that sometimes when he and his little son were sitting on the bed, his son was picked up and thrown onto the other bed in a flying move. I sat down in the same bedroom to see if anything would happen. We heard a terrible scream behind us, which came from a small balcony. I opened the door and ran out to see if I could see anything, but there was nothing. No fallen stones, nothing. It was 2.30 in the morning, and the noise was dreadful. When I'd first entered the room, I noticed they had a large wooden crucifix on the wall, and hanging off it was a smaller, pearly crucifix like the one children get at their first Holy Communions. There was also a poster, but a few moments later, the crucifix had been turned upside down, the little crucifix was on the floor, 
and the poster and the door had three or four deep scratches in them, as if someone had clawed through the poster and deep into the door. According to Officer Negri, the Lazaro family soon left the home, moving to an undisclosed location in Madrid. Years later, the family told reporters that after moving from their home, their lives returned to normal. A popular horror movie, Veronica, was created to document the events. According to Spanish director Paco Plaza, his hit movie was only based loosely on Estefania's story. However, overlay text in the movie lists real dates, times, addresses, including the address of the police station in Madrid that took the family's infamous call. In the movie's closing credits, crime scene photos accompanying the credits included this statement. This story is based on the police report filed by the detective in charge of the case. Most everyone speeds on the road that runs alongside Cisco, Utah. It can be hard not to once you work your way into that feeling of empty space and no one to hold you accountable. The town, after all, doesn't look like much. A desolate mess of ruined buildings on the scenic route from I-70 to the recreation mecca of Moab, Utah, just a few miles from the boat ramp on the Colorado River, where rafters load up after running Westwater Canyon. A cursory internet search will tell you that Cisco has cameoed in car chases in the movies Thelma and Luis and Vanishing Point, and may have inspired the Johnny Cash song Cisco Clifton's Filling Station. Without fail, articles about Cisco will also tell you that it's a ghost town. This irritates Eileen Musa. Cisco is not abandoned, she often points out. I live here. From the website hcn.org, a story by Sarah Gilman, The Pioneer of Ruin. The LaSalle Mountains rise up south of Eileen's home, and Cisco stands in the Cisco Desert, in an exposed, waterless low spot that one book describes without irony as a hole. But Eileen has her own names for things, her own landmarks. My Mountains, the One Tire Valley, the Green Valley, and the Cisco Desert itself. A scrubby, barren, plumbed with pump jacks and shimmering with broken glass, Eileen calls that the unknown. The unknown was not why Eileen moved to Cisco. It might be a reason that she stays, though, if she stays. It is also the reason it is so hard to stay. The desert here is not nice the way it is in Moab, with its shapely red rock expanses and verdant cottonwood bottoms. In Cisco, even the light has blades. One time, a lake of oil leaked from a pump jack inside town limits. Another, Eileen looked up to discover two men shooting in her direction from the window of a white pickup. And on a hot, still day in June of 2017, a man running a raft shuttle found Eileen's dog crumpled in the weeds at the road's shoulder. He loaded the limp body onto his trailer, blood running all over his hands, and drove it to her house. She was raw that afternoon when I arrived for a visit, her face shadowed under a broad hat, her eyes hidden behind sunglasses. She hunched over a wheelbarrow as her friend Joe Bell and I helped her look for rocks to seal Cairo, pronounced Cairo after Cairo, Illinois, 
beneath his little mound of earth. You don't have to help, she said a few times, but we ignored her, pulling stones from the flats and palming them with a clang into the barrel. She wouldn't be getting another dog, she finally insisted. It's too much of a weak spot for me. I need to be really fucking strong out here. If I let myself be soft, she seemed to be saying, I will not last. By now, maybe you picture Eileen as a weathered old hermit lady with her mouth set in a grim line who's suspicious of strangers and keeps a gun by her front door. And Eileen does carry a handgun, a 9mm that hangs heavy on her hip, but she's only 34. She's small and hard, with a face darkened enough by sun and dirt that her teeth flash like a signal mirror when she laughs. She has an all-day coffee habit, hair shaved close to the scalp, and the kind of intent, sunlit eyes you sometimes see staring out at you from old tintype photographs. Eileen is a gardener who has landed in a place where nothing will grow. Eileen was born in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, the oldest of six kids. Her parents, a mailman and a landscaper, never had much money, so in the family mythology, property was the foundation from which other good things grew. According to one oft-told story, as a girl, Eileen's grandmother brought a plate from the evening meal each night to an elderly neighbor and stayed to talk. In return, he willed her his house, and she and Eileen's grandfather were able to use it as collateral to buy their own, opening a door to better lives. Their kids learned to be resourceful. Eileen credits her love of cast-offs and thrift to her mother, Linda Musa, who is on such good terms with the guys at the dump that she bakes some pies. Eileen attended the School of the Art Institute of Chicago for a year after high school, but the $30,000 a year price tag seemed to lead to impossible debt, so she dropped out and, after she had worked off her loans, traveled instead. She had always loved exploring abandoned buildings. Now she grew bolder, sleeping in doorways in Paris and living for a time in an abandoned mansion in Sicily, where horses came down from the hills to nuzzle her hands. The habit continued after she returned to the Midwest, where hard times had left old factories yawning with dark invitation, industrial cathedrals of brick and stained glass. Eileen was cautious, but undeterred by the abstract possibility of falling through a rotten floor or of getting caught, Linda said. And yet she had a certain tenderness. Every family has a warrior, Linda told me, and Eileen was the muses. She could be gregarious and disarming. When Eileen moved back to Chicago in 2007, she became so fond of a Korean spa that she and her girlfriend sometimes slept overnight in the nap room so they could soak in hot water for two days. For ten years, Eileen grew green things for the city of Chicago's floriculture department. She loved the diverse cast of co-workers, gay, straight, every shade of skin, people from all over the world. She tended the garden in her yard until it overflowed with color. But like the Art Institute, it felt shaky. The work was seasonal, and her house was a rental in a rapidly gentrifying neighborhood. Then, in January 2015, Eileen traveled to Utah to see the Great Gallery Rock Art Panel, where life-sized red ochre figures loom on cream-colored sandstone. Another passenger on the plane told her about Cisco, so Eileen stopped there, as many do, en route to her actual destination. She paused in front of a rough log cabin and metal trailer, across from a peeling post office the size of an upended van, 
all of it surrounded by debris and distance. That looks like the only house in America that I can afford, she said to herself. She saw a possibility in the junk and supplies, almost everything she might need except water and soil. In a place no one seemed to want, she could build something truly her own. The empty house wasn't for sale, but she tracked down its owner in nearby Grand Junction, Colorado. Eileen negotiated her price, negotiated it again, and by April, she had it. A place to make a life for less than a used car. The Cisco that drew Eileen bears little resemblance to the Cisco that was. Before the full metastasis of European settlement, the land here was lusher, part of the Ute territory. Bands passed through seasonally, harvesting pronghorn and wild onion, and later moving with their own livestock. Photographs of the town that eventually rose in this spot show unlikely squares of lawn, a mercantile, service stations, and hotels. Smiling children cluster in front of a school where there's now only a weed patch. Rubble is all that remains of most buildings. Those still standing are full of garbage that people have dumped and surrounded by junk vehicles in various states of dismemberment, also full of garbage. A bare spot along the tracks on the north side of town marks the place where a giant tank stored water pumped from the Colorado River. Like the much more populous Thompson Springs to the west, Cisco started as a water stop for the steam-powered railroad. The original town site was established a couple miles away on the narrow-gauge line. Then, Cisco followed the new standard-gauge railroad to its present location. A post office opened in 1887. Many of the early news items in local papers document the minutia of everyday lives. Dances, who was visiting who, a kidnapped sheepdog that found his way home after a two-year absence. Cisco was where ranchers from Book Cliffs to the north and the river bottom and the LaSalle's to the south brought their livestock for winter range and shipping. Tens of thousands of cows roamed the greater area. As the forage deteriorated, sheep came into favor, with 230,000 permitted to graze by 1938, despite the passage of rangeland protection laws. As many as 100,000 sheep were sheared annually in Cisco in those days. In 1906, a single outfit shipped out a quarter million pounds of wool. It was packed into tubular sacks and piled along the railroad grade, where local kids played king of the mountain before heading home to be inspected for ticks, according to Dale Harris, who attended elementary school in Cisco and now lives part-time a few miles away. Like many other residents, Dale's dad, Ballard Harris, built a life there from salvage. He moved his family house from Green River to a spot west of Cisco and assembled an attached service station from the pieces of a building he bought in a ghost town called Seago. Drillers hid hydrocarbons in the Cisco desert in the mid-twenties, and the industry periodically flared and subsided there over the next century. In 1952, a man named Charlie Steen was living with his family in a tar paper shack in Cisco when he made the uranium strike south of Moab that spurred the mining and milling frenzy that consumed parts of Utah until the 1980s when Moab's mill finally closed. After diesel train engines replaced steam in the 50s, the town leaned on its role as a stopover for east-west automobile traffic. Cisco's population hit about 250 in 1940. It had periods of diversity, though likely the segregated variety. Italian, Chinese, Japanese, 
African-American, and Native American crews worked the railroad. There were Bosque shepherds from Spain. A famous black cowboy named Charlie Glass was a regular in the area until his death in 1937. According to Moab resident Ginger Shuey, Glass occasionally stopped by the house where her grandmother, Virginia Groover, boarded guests. Virginia left her kids, Ginger's young mother, aunt, and one of her uncles in charge while she was away, and Glass looked out for him, Ginger said. Once, a customer tried to grope Ginger's aunt, and she dumped a bowl of stew on his head. When he leapt up in fury, he found Charlie's gun in his face. It can be difficult to judge whether the Wild West stories about Cisco are true or apocryphal. Perhaps that matters less than the fact that most people choose to tell them, simultaneously recreating the town and adding its patina to their own histories. Virginia, Ginger told me, was a bootlegger. The sheriff raided her house but never found her whiskey because being a man, he didn't think to look in the brown glass Clorox bottles by the laundry. Dale said his father went to investigate a strange noise one night wearing only his unders and a six-shooter and found a man and a woman trying to crowbar open the change box in the service station phone booth. He scared them so badly they got wedged in the doorway trying to flee. A.J. Rogers, a retired Utah Department of Transportation foreman who grew up and still lives in Thompson Springs, remembers visiting the cafe in Cisco in 1970 to play pool and drink beer as a teenager the proprietor not being particular about ID. In 1973, AJ got a seasonal job building I-70, and it was I-70 that ultimately killed Cisco, bypassing it by a couple of miles. Ironically, AJ told me, the new interstate ran right through the town site that Cisco had left to follow the railroad. The town went from very quiet to absolute silence, recalled Dean Christensen, who ran leases in the oil field over the next 40 years from the house next door to Eileen's. Even so, he said, the distance from law enforcement meant there was always something happening in Cisco. One resident supposedly built a two-story doghouse over an oil well to hide it from inspectors. Dean claimed at least three bodies were dumped near Cisco during his tenure and that the serial killer Ted Bundy stopped by the old store and gas station and immediately turned around when he found a group of armed locals playing cards. Dale Harris's dad's place burned down after he died, and Dale demolished the garage and root cellar too. Transients had been staying there, he explained uneasily. He found a coyote carcass strung in a doorway. His son found a dead dog hanging from a pole. By the 1980s, Grand County had collected 80.5 acres of Cisco in lieu of delinquent taxes. It sold the land to a company that planned a mall-sized incinerator that would process 2,000 pounds per hour of toxic chemicals like PCBs. The company's president attended county meetings in a polyester suit and diamond pinky ring like the dynasty version of an old-time snake oil salesman. It would have been a fitting conclusion to Cisco's decline, the town no longer valued for what it might produce, but for the wasteland it had become. In the end, even this faded. An hour down the road in Moab, the county seat, environmental consciousness was growing. In 1988, the then mostly conservative community blocked the incinerator by a two-to-one vote. The referendum signaled the region's new direction, a near-complete dependence on tourism, its own form of extraction. When experiences are sold, when scenery becomes commodity, 
places can morph into caricatures of themselves, obscuring context and meaning. Moab drew the money, and Sisko drew the lollygaggers. The ruins alone couldn't imbue Sisko's scrap of ground with the complexity of a memory. Substance abuse and skeletons in the desert and drinking water carried in milk cans and men crushed between train cars and joy and poverty and house fires and holes in the floor and rooms washed yellow with leftover road paint because it was what there was to use. The town became a sideline, a big part of many narrative threads, but with no complete one of its own. And with no center, it would become whatever viewers wanted. Like with the LaSalle's in the desert, Eileen came up with her own affectionate name for Cisco, Garbage Island. It didn't take Eileen long to realize that leaving her property on Garbage Island unattended was risky. The day after she bought it, someone ransacked the trailer. She couldn't stay to ward off vandals because she was broke, so during the first two years, she tried to have friends camp there while she went home to Chicago for the temperate months to work her landscaping job and see the woman she was dating. In the off-seasons, she returned to Utah. Eileen's mom, Linda, joined her for her first month there, and the two worked on Eileen's two small parcels through bitter winter weather and bad head colds, burning debris in a metal barrel as they went. It was so cold when her dad, Richard Musa, visited that the paint he intended to use on Eileen's little post office froze solid and he had to thaw it with a space heater. Eileen's parents supported what she was doing. I remember thinking, you're really going to know who you are here because there's no distraction, Linda said. It's like this is where music began. This is a place that people had to fill up with their own sound so they didn't go fucking crazy. Eileen had been warned about Cisco's extremes, but by early winter of 2016, she had settled in full time. Part of me wants to just see how bad it's going to get, she told me after a mutual friend introduced us. She went to a Catholic school, she said, and I think this place has something to do with that. It's a challenge, but also it's a punishment. Everybody has to wander through the desert, right? In the Bible? Over the coming months, she grew skinny on discount groceries and boiled her coffee with water poured from five-gallon jugs filled at the 7-Eleven in Moab or a spigot behind a dumpster in Grand Junction where she went for building supplies when she couldn't find what she needed in Cisco. The wind was constant, and that spring, it gusted so hard one night that some of Eileen's friends heard a lopsided building tear apart and collapse. In summer, it got so hot that sometimes Eileen would lie down on the dirt floor of the cabin's cellar when the sun hit its apogee. It rained so rarely that she forgot what it felt like, she said, though sometimes the wind threw pebbles against the metal skin of her trailer and they sounded yearningly like the first drops of a storm. A few days into one of my visits, fed up with the heat, Eileen, her sister Claire, and Claire's friend Amy piled into an SUV and bumped overland to find a spring that someone had told Eileen about. Eileen imagined it as a deep pool and brought a bar of soap. There was supposedly an old road, but every track we tried ended in a gully or holes big enough to swallow a wheel. We exited off the interstate instead, searching a web of oil and gas roads until we found a place where a thicket of salt cedar and cottonwood glowed in the sunset light. Water gurgled somewhere beneath the rot, but we couldn't see it. Eileen stepped gingerly through the cattails. There are animals in here, she squeaked, part nerves, part delight. 
Claire and Amy branched north looking for water too, but found only a dead cow. They led us to the little knot of juniper trees where it lay, and we peered through a hole in its chest. There was only blackness inside. Eileen came to relish the freedom of the unknown, all searching walks and random artifacts, a dump full of brown glass Clorox bottles like the ones Ginger Shuey described, a wooden post hammered into the ground miles from anywhere with a metal file jammed into the top. She became the place's unofficial archivist. Still, she asked Claire, only half-jokingly, if she might go and sing. Linda worried about Eileen being a young woman alone out there, and about Eileen being lonely. The most challenging thing about Cisco wasn't the solitude, though. It was how often Eileen had company she didn't want. When she bought her place, she hadn't realized just how many spectators the ruined town drew. She watched flabbergasted as tourists climbed under fences to explore ominous buildings papered with no trespassing signs or wandered onto her own property filming with their iPhones while she was in plain sight. She piled twisted metal and wood to keep people from driving into the desert and circling behind her place where they were difficult to track. If someone seemed creepy, she'd find a way to mention her shotgun. She kept her buildings lit up all night with solar-powered exterior lamps. When a drone whined over the roof of her cabin, she tried to shoot it down. When someone parked close to the cabin for too long, she blasted a recording of Charles Bukowski reading his grim poetry in a gravelly monotone. Once they hear him talking about horrors and beer farts, she said, people hit the gas real quick. People seemed to feel entitled to the space because they thought it was empty. Eileen fought this the best way she could think of. She let them think she owned the whole town, so they would listen when she told them to stay on the road. She didn't like strangers trespassing on private land that absent neighbors couldn't defend or taking things for their own use. And she justified her own salvage of bits and pieces from the ruins by explaining that what she took stayed where it belonged, in Cisco. Late one frigid December night, I was reading in Eileen's post office when I heard a gunshot a few feet away. I cautiously stepped into the dark to find her in trench coat and underwear, standing next to her friend Nick on a boardwalk she'd built to avoid the gumbo mud that the earth became each spring. The muzzle flashed as she fired at an angle, again, into the sky. Fucking kids, she said. She pointed to the other side of town where she'd heard someone rummaging in a building on the main road. I spotted headlights rolling eastward, but instead of speeding away, the truck turned up the side road toward us. Someone inside played a high-powered spotlight over one old building and then another. The truck turned again and rolled to a stop between Eileen's buildings, not 20 feet away from where we watched from behind the outhouse. The spotlight pooled across the front of the cabin. I wish I was wearing clothes, Eileen hissed. She fired once more over the desert. The truck reluctantly rolled on. Eileen stomped back to bed, her bare feet pounding the boards. As much as Cisco's power to attract people irked Eileen, it was also the thing that began to steady her there. A woman named Farland Fish stopped in town one day to let her dogs chase the rabbits that lurked amid the junk and was surprised to find Eileen there too. Athletic and tall with wind-tangled blonde hair, Farland lived in the LaSalle's, worked odd jobs, and shared Eileen's love of old stuff. She felt an immediate kinship with the younger woman, 
and when Eileen moved to Cisco full-time, Farland became a steady visitor. Eileen thought of her as a second mom. There were others, too. A man who checked the oil pumps began running in on Eileen. Her nearest neighbor brought her bullets. Raft shuttlers brought her ice and oranges. A musician and woodworker named Michael Gerlach came out from Milwaukee after a bad breakup and stayed off and on for eight months. A drinking water advocate named Fern Schultz hit the road following a dear friend's suicide and a decision to drop out of grad school and ended up helping Eileen out a couple times on Utah bike roads. Later, she stayed for nearly a month. Eileen first met Joe Bell, who later helped her bury Cairo when she confronted him looking for metal as darkness fell one night. Joe turned out to be armed, a former defense contractor IT specialist with libertarian-leaning politics who had moved back to Moab, where he grew up, to become a blacksmith. They recognized something in each other, and soon Joe was a regular too. These connections helped build Eileen a foundation that property and self-reliance alone couldn't give, a boosted faith in her own vision and a kind of community. They also made the punishing work, Eileen's journey through the desert with its long days and constant grime, lighter. Eileen taught herself how to build windows and doors from studying how Cisco's builders had improvised. Joe helped Eileen re-roof the cabin with optimistic-looking red metal. Inside, Farland helped her peel back fake wood paneling, chicken wire, and plaster, thick paint, and layers of wallpaper. They yanked up three shag carpets laid over several sheets of linoleum. Michael helped build a new floor. Fern broke down kitchen walls full of rat stuff turned to dust. Pieces of past eras, interleaved, emerged from the walls, from the dirt and sheds surrounding. Star Wars cards and a gold ring, old coins and floppy disks, written on the cabin wall in cursive pencil, a name, Jesse Groover, Ginger's uncle, and another inside the front door, Francisco Pikeby, 1962, beside faded lines scrawled in Spanish and Bosque. Eventually, Eileen had the cabin in livable shape, the tiny post office overhauled and fitted with an air conditioner, and the shack next door shored up and tightly insulated. She began renting out the two smaller buildings to guests through Airbnb, bringing in a thin but steady seasonal income and visitors from near and far that approximated the diverse mix she missed in Chicago. Besides family and friends, there were artists, an FBI agent, models from Europe, a couple from China, two young women on their way to Vegas to get married. One day, she got an email from a retired teacher in Japan who was building a scale model of Cisco for the railroad set in his house. Another day, some horses wandered into the town, and she, her sister Maggie, and a friend led them back to the camp of some Peruvian shepherds. The helpers, too, just kept accreting, some in less obvious ways. Among them was a couple from Arizona who stopped by barren groceries and some dog treats several months after Cairo died. They gently urged Eileen to keep the treats, and she resolved to donate the box to the Moab Animal Shelter. She figured she could walk a dog. The person behind the desk brought out a desert-born, dingo-looking little thing with crooked ears, mysterious scars, and a limp. She had been returned twice. Now, she climbed into Eileen's car as if she had been there a thousand times, like she was already my dog, Eileen said. Eileen named her Rima. 
Maybe it was just Eileen's way with people that led some to return. Or maybe it was Cisco. It's free-feeling distance from regular life. It's suggestion that ruin was not ruin at all. Cisco is the best place to land in the midst of troubles, Fern told me. There is no judgment. If you work, Eileen likes you. If you work hard, she likes you even more. Joe Bell gave me an explanation for the phenomenon that seemed as plausible as any. Once I realized Eileen's situation, I wanted to see how the story ended, he said. I want to see her succeed. On a walk out into the unknown this winter, I asked Eileen why she thought so many people were drawn to the town. She was quiet for a moment. I like Farland's thought that they like to peek into the future of humanity, she said. Maybe Cisco compels them for the same reasons apocalyptic narratives about zombies and other disasters are so popular. They can look into the darkness of societal collapse from a safe vantage. Then they can go home to run in water and a job. I guess this was a town recently enough to be sort of alarming as a ghost town, I said at another point. If this town can empty out and blow away, basically it can happen to any town. And it will, Eileen said. It happens everywhere. But late one night, as we watched the barrel fire burn down, I asked Farland and Eileen more explicitly if this ghost town obsession was really about death. They rejected the idea. It's the opposite, Eileen said. Even if old things can't remember, they take on the feel of those who used them, carrying it forward. And with the work of Eileen's hands everywhere here now, her soul layered with the others who have rebuilt this place over and over and over, she said she won't be leaving if she can help it. What Eileen has done isn't restoration, but it does feel like a resurrection. Cisco is breathing again, and not just because of the wind changing the pressure in the buildings, making the boards creak. Eileen still questions her decision to move here when smoke from wildfires blots out the sky or something creepy happens. She hasn't seen her mom in two years. Her grandfather died this spring, and she grieved from a distance, consoling herself by yelling at a bus full of Australian tourists. She sometimes talks about buying an old church in the green wilds of Michigan's Upper Peninsula, but even then, she would keep Cisco. She and her sisters are planning an artist residency in an old Winnebago that she and another friend are framing as a house. Every day, she seems more interested in her chosen home's future than she is in its past. When Eileen was redoing the floor in the shack near the post office, she found two more signatures. They belonged to the Paces, brothers who founded a local cattle company and owned the mercantile for a time. She signed her own name low on the wall. To me, this is like art now, she told me. This is not just making a house. Everything is intentional. Those guys did the same thing. Everybody wants to put their name on something. I think that's what art is about. Here I am. I'm alive right now. Look what I made. This June was much like Eileen's first on the property, a fist of heat pressing down. One weekend, we took off with Rima to look for water, a cake of soap wrapped in brown paper balanced between us on the dash of her little sedan. Not to the trickle spring with its dead cow this time, but to the Colorado River where a shelf of stone sliced into the current. The dog watched Eileen peel out of dirt-rhymed clothes and dive under. When she surfaced, floating on her back in an eddy, 
Rima dashed along the edge, biting and barking at the water, this foreign, wet, wild thing, and Eileen laughed, her teeth flashing up at the slate gray sky, tasseled at its edges by Virga that promised rain, but never touched the earth. That concludes this episode of Curseland. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed. As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show, you're welcome to send those suggestions to feedback at curse.land. Till next time, I'll talk to you all later.